Good morning, everybody, all in this room, and those of you joining us online, hope you're having a great summer so far. It's a little steamy and hot, right, outside, but it's nice and cool here. If I have not met you yet, my name is Jay, one of the pastors here, and today we're starting a, a new teaching series looking at songs and hymns that have shaped our hearts and minds for so many people for generations. And I love how in our younger generation, our younger people are either discovering or rediscovering these hymns that connect us to the ancient past and the, the shoulders that we stand on. I love what J.C. Ryle, an Anglican bishop, said about hymns. He says, there is an elevating, steering, soothing, spiritualizing effect about a thoroughly good hymn which nothing else can produce. And I think you would agree with me that songs are powerful. Music, music really moves our hearts. Ephesians 5.19 talks about how we are to sing and make music to the Lord because what music does is that it allows us to enter into the presence of God and we learn how to surrender fully to him. And music has this way of shaping our culture, our society, and even our behavior. I remember the very first time when I saw Michael Jackson's music video thriller, right? He was wearing a red jacket, and I said to myself, I need to get one of those jackets. So I told my parents, okay, we have to go to this store. By the way, there was no online shopping back then, right? So you have to like, literally, you have to stand in line and wait, push other kids around off and say, okay, I'm, I want that jacket. So, uh, so I wore that jacket, I think one time, to go to school, and I got made fun at, so I didn't, I didn't wear that after that. So. But it really shapes your behavior. Or I remember that time when a friend of mine gave me a, a cassette tape, this ancient artifact you could find in the Smithsonian Museum, right, this cassette tape. And he said, Jay, you have to listen to this song by this band called Starship. I think it used to be called Jefferson Starship. And um, there was a song called, We Built This City. Does anyone remember that song? Yes, we built this city on rock and roll. I mean, I listened to that over and over again. Dad, put that in the car and just listen, listen, listen to it. We built this city on rock and roll. It was awesome, right? It really kind of shaped my, my teenage years. And um, by the way, um, that guy on the left is not the guy from Tiger King. I just want you to know that. Okay, it's a different guy, different guy. God created music to touch the human soul. You know, but often we sing songs or hymns and we don't know uh, either the, the intent of the author or the life experience that the author had to write some of these songs, such as, uh, which is true for the hymn that, that all of us right now in all of our campus, all of our services are studying, which is the song, Holy, 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 right? Holy, Holy, Holy. Let me give you a quick background on this song. Holy, Holy, Holy was written by an Anglican pastor by the name of Reginald Abair. And uh, in early 1800s, he was living in a little village off of Birmingham, England. And he wanted to help revive this small church. And so he wanted to contemporize his church by introducing a song that had a little bit more, that's more upbeat and a bit of instrument. And he wrote, holy, holy, holy. He's like the Chris Tomlin of our days or like Elevation Music or Maverick City. He wanted to like help these people, like get with the Lord and bring Holy Spirit into this congregation. And he wrote this on a day called Trinity Sunday. So in Christian calendar, today is Trinity Sunday where we... 
celebrate the, the beautiful majesty and the mystery of, of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, which is evidenced by, uh, there's a stanza in the song, Holy, 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 where we talk about blessed Trinity. When he was 40 years old, he um, decided to move to Calcutta, India to do mission work and to be uh, the bishop of Anglican denomination over there. And, but three years later, because of the harsh conditions, he died, right? He died three years later at age 43. But the enduring legacy of his life, Reginald Hebert, was that he gave us his hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. And for over 200 years, churches across the world in so many different languages, we've been singing this song to help us understand what it means to, for us to stand in the presence of Holy God. So what I wanna do today is take a passage uh, that supports, that is rooted in, in, in the, the song that we're going to sing a little bit later, Holy, 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 and it's from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me or your app, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. I'm going to be teaching verse by verse, so this is God's active and living work for us today. Uh, well, let me go ahead and say this. Um, there's only one main point in today's message. And it's the point that the prophet Isaiah is going to speak on. It's really the same topic uh, of the song, Holy, Holy, Holy. We're going to look at the holiness of God. Holiness of God is mentioned 637 times in the Bible, more than any other attributes of God. Right? So when, when someone mentions, when in the Bible, when something is repeated that often, we need to really understand what God is trying to communicate to us about God's holiness. Because I really believe that when we understand God's holiness, it can, tr- it can change the trajectory of our lives. But I think in Christian circles or just in our culture, the word holy is not a, it's not a cool word, right? It's often associated with something that's bland or boring. It's a pejorative language when, when let's say, you know, people say, oh, you're, you're a holy roller. That's not a good thing, right? Because they're saying, you're, you're judgmental. You are, you think you're someone special. So what is holiness? What is holiness? Isaiah chapter six, beginning with verse one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting up on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Let me pause here and give you a a background to this verse one and and, and the history. If you know anything about the history of Jewish monarchy, there were good kings and there were bad kings. And if, if the good kings were on the throne, Typically, life was good, really good. I mean, people prospered, you had food, people were healthy, and there was a sense of stability and peace in the nation. But when Israel had bad kings, life was miserable because you just never knew when, when, when a neighboring nation may come and attack you. They may even take your kids away. You may even become slaves of them, right? And you would have been, life would have been really unstable. King Uzziah uh, was a good king. And he reigned for 50 years, 52 years to be exact. And um, this is a guy who was uh, strategic in his thinking, military strategist, built infrastructures. People loved him. Things were flourishing in the city. But just like many good leaders and good kings, when you have too much power or too much pride, what happens is that you tend to kind of fall off and you, you, you fall. 
I don't know if you know this or not, there has been a research done that uh, most good leaders, most good leaders, 70% of leaders, uh, towards, the, towards the end of their uh, life or their career, uh, they go down. Something happens to them. There's a scandal or typically because of pride, uh, they don't succeed in their, in their career. So we as Christians, we need to learn how to humble ourselves. King Uzziah became a little prideful and became disobedient to the Lord. So God shows up one day and strikes him with leprosy. And he was quarantined for the rest of his life and he died. So you can imagine what it was like for people of Israel when this king that was adored died after reigning for 50 years of this flourishing of of their nation. So when, when Isaiah says, this was the year that King Uzziah died, he could have said, this was an end of an era. Or this was a season when people felt scared about their future. And it was in this moment of chaos sense of instability where prophet Isaiah has a vision and he was being transported to this heavenly vision where he sees heavenly king. He goes, I looked up and I see a king, but this king is not like any other king, but this is a heavenly king and he's beautiful. He's robed in majesty. His, the train of his robe fills the temple. And listen to what he says. He doesn't say that God himself was big and majestic and God himself fills the temple, but just a train of his robe. This is how incredible God was, fills the temple. In ancient times, the length of your train of the robe symbolized splendor and the greatness of who you were. I don't know if you keep up with a British, not tabloids, but British monarchy. Queen Elizabeth II recently um, celebrated, I think it's called Platinum Jubilee, uh, her 70 years on the, being on the throne as a queen of England. When Meghan Markle, when she was married to Prince Harry, she had a, a dress and train that was, I think you'll see it here, uh, eight feet long. Her, her veil was twice as long. So when Prince Harry's mother, that's Princess Diana, when, when she was married, her train of her, her dress was 25 feet long. Again, that symbolizes splendor and beauty and grace. But not to be outdone, there was a bride from Romania who had a train that was 1.85 miles long. You see that? Can you imagine the bridesmaids, right? How many bridesmaids she would need to fix her, her, her dress? Um, as a publicity stunt, she decides to get on this hot air balloon and she takes a selfie, right, just to show how long this thing is, 1.85, right? Okay, uh, here, here's, here's my point. Our God does not need publicity stunt to show how great he is, right? Our God is infinitely beautiful and majestic. God does not draw any attention to himself simply because of who God is. Our God is holy. And I hope you see the contrast that Isaiah is trying to make between King Uzziah and, and heavenly king. King Uzziah had fallen from his throne, but God is still on his throne, Isaiah says. And King Uzziah was trying to lift himself up and prop, prop himself up on his personal throne. But God, is all, God will always be highly exalted and be lifted up. So Isaiah, is some, he's saying something like this. In the year that we lost our human king, I saw the real king. I saw the real king. 
Now, I recognize that in, in, in space like this, there may be some of us here feeling like that. You may have lost something this year, uh, and, and your life feels a little unstable, maybe a little fragile. I just want to remind us, our God is still on the throne. Our God is on the throne. He's high. He's, he's highly lifted up. He's exalted among us. Now watch what Isaiah sees in the next verse, verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. So Isaiah sees a six-winged creatures called seraphims. Seraphim literally means burning ones, and we don't exactly know what these creatures look like, but what we do know is that they were not this cuddly, cupid-like uh, angelic beings kind of flying around with a harp, right? That's not, that's, not, that's not seraphims. Seraphims were these mighty, mighty angels. And we can know this based on verse four because verse four says, when one, when one of the seraphims spoke, the foundation of heaven shook, right? That's it, a picture of, of something great that is happening there I love what John Piper says. He says this about this particular scene. He says, what we have here is a sacred scene that is supposed to silence us, frighten us, humble us, terrify us. And even as great as these seraphims were, even when they saw the holiness of God, they too were terrified by what they were seeing. That's why they needed six wings, two to fly, Two to cover their eyes because they're seeing the brilliance of God and two to cover their feet because they were standing on holy ground. God is holy. And here's how the second stanza of the hymn, Holy, 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 captures this, this scene. He goes like this. Holy, 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 all the saints adore thee, casting down their golden crowns, uh, crowns around the glassy sea. All the cherubim and seraphim are falling down before thee, which wert and art and evermore shall be. You know, some of you heard me share this story uh, in the past. I think it's worth sharing again in light of today's topic. Several years ago, um, I had the honor of going to Cuba with some of our church members. And if you know about Cuba, Cuba is a communist nation and it is, um, I guess you could say, somewhat illegal to publicly declare your faith in Jesus in public settings, but what you can do is go visit people's homes, house by house, block by block, and talk about the love of Christ, right? And when we were there, I remember meeting one of the pastors who had been serving so faithfully, and he told us a story of one day when he took his church members to share the gospel going door by door. But this particular village was a place where they were hostile to Jesus, and the villagers found out what the church members were doing. So they, they started coming out with like stones and broomsticks and two by fours trying to, trying to get the Christians out from their village. Sensing that there was uh, anger and hostility, pastor said to his team members, okay, we gotta go, we gotta jet, this is not good. And they start backpedaling. But they got to a place where they were cornered. They had no place to go. And they were being surrounded by 30 plus angry men who were about to do some damage. Here's the pastor not knowing what to do. And, and as they were standing there, here's what the pastor said. He said, but somehow, one by one, these angry people, the mob, the gang leaders, 
they start to like walk away. Actually, they start to run away, he said. And the pastor had no idea what, what was happening. He just, he thought the police came to, to rescue them, but there, was, there were no police presence. Well, several days later, uh, the, the leader of this mob came to visit his church and wanted to see the pastor. And the, the leader, this guy, said to the pastor, um, I want to know more about your God because something happened on that day. And the pastor asked, by the way, why did you guys leave? Why did you guys just run away? What happened on that day? And this guy goes, well, you didn't see what was happening? The pastor goes, no. Well, right above you, there were armies of angels standing, guarding and protecting, and they were big. And I want to know who your God is because I want to worship that God who has these angelic beings. And that day that, that this person came to know Jesus. So I shared this story a few years ago here in our church. And I have an update on this story, a real-time update. Um, after I shared that story, um, some of our church members, these, were, these are trusted, faithful, faithful, trusted, humble, servant leaders, members of our church, who have come up to me one-on-one privately and said something like, Jay, I want you to know that I too have seen angels here on our campus. And they would tell me where these angels are standing. Up until a few weeks ago, I've been having these kinds of conversations. These angels are peaceful. They're standing, guarding, protecting both adults and the kids, right? They're watching and caring for us. But here's what I want us to focus on. What's, 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 what's incredible for me is not that these angels or seraphims have this presence or mighty presence. That's not what gets to me. I'm more impressed by their message because they said in verse three, holy, 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 the Lord God is almighty. In the Hebrew language, using the threefold repetition is a way to point to superlatives or excellency of that person. And you will, you will notice in the Bible, you'll notice in the Bible that you will never see or hear about uh, attributes of God that's repeated three times. You will not read about mercy, mercy, mercy of God, or justice, justice, justice of God, or love, love, love of God. But you will hear about holy, holy, holiness of who our God is. And that word holy, kadosh in Hebrew, means set apart, sacred, distinct, very different. Our God is unique. Our God is in class by himself. There's no one like him. God is above us. God is beyond us. God is completely, fully, entirely holy. He is good. He is right. He is pure. He is righteous. Our God is immeasurable, incomprehensible. God is powerful. God is almighty. There's no one like God. Oh, God. This God is so unlimited in power that time and space cannot contain him or define him. He created the universe. There's no beginning or no end. He is Alpha and Omega. This is who our God is. Our God is so holy. And you would think that when Isaiah heard these creatures, angelic beings shout, holy, 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 you would think that he would say, yes, amen, praise the Lord. But he doesn't do that. Look at verse five. Look at how he responds. He actually cries out. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. 
for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So he's saying here, I am ruined. Another version says, I am undone. I am going to die because I am standing in the presence of God. And when Isaiah sees the majesty of God, he becomes so aware of his own rebellious nature. And Isaiah confesses his sins. And here's what I want you to notice. What did God have to do to draw out this confession from Isaiah? What what did God say in this verse? Nothing, right? Absolutely nothing. God didn't have to say anything. God simply is who he is. God was just being God. And when Isaiah was standing in the presence of God, he confessed his sins because he sees himself so, so far removed from the holiness of God. God's presence was enough to convict convict his sins. And he says what? I'm a man of unclean lips. And this is really interesting to me because what is Isaiah's vocation? What is his job? He's a prophet. What do prophets do? They speak on behalf of God. They communicate God's truth. What is the most important part of Isaiah as as his vocation? It's his mouth, his lips. That is his greatest strength, right? It's like saying, if I were to ask you, what is Tom Brady, uh, the NFL quarterback, what's his greatest strength? Most likely his, his arm, so he could throw. Or if you play tennis, how about for Serena Williams, right? What is her greatest strength? It's probably her explosive raw power. And for Isaiah, it was his lips because he speaks on on behalf of God. And he says, the the greatest gift that I have is nothing pales in comparison to holiness of God. Because his lips would have defined who he is. This is what he did for a job. And he says, no, my my greatest gifts, my greatest contribution, the thing that defines me is, is nothing to the holiness of God. And and so he realized that his very best could not save him. You know, sometimes we think that, especially when times are unstable and rocky, um, sometimes we believe that we can bring our very best. And as long as we endure, if we had grit, or we bring the very best version of ourselves, or if we had the emotional intelligence, then we, we could somehow rescue ourselves, or we can solve all the problems in the world. But that is not true. Because when you and I are devastated by setbacks in life or experience reversals in life, that the very thing that once held your life together, that strength, when that thing gets undone, you say to yourself, man, I'm ruined. I'm ruined. So what is that thing that we've been putting on our personal throne that's crumbling away? And some of us may be dealing with life situation where, where this year feels like that something died in you and you feel numb. It feels like an end of an era. And you wonder, am I going to be okay? Am I going to be okay? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes because God is the one who always initiates with his grace. Look at what happens in verses six and seven. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, verse seven. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. 
So here's what's happening. Isaiah is sitting in darkness. The ground is shaking. The smoke has filled the temple. He is nervous about his future. And he sees one of the seraphims going over to the altar to pick up a burning coal. And the seraphim flies over. He, and and, and he touch, the, the seraphim touches lips, Isaiah's lips, with a burning coal. So we need to ask, why was there a burning coal, a burning altar in this temple space? Well, it's because in the days of Old Testament, people would bring unblemished, perfect lamb as a sacrifice uh, in exchange for their sins. We call this atonement. The people of God placed their sin on the lamb and prayed, Lord, I know that I'm so far from you. So I'll place all of my sin on this lamb. Will you forgive me? And this lamb uh, will be burnt and would die on the fire. So the sins of that person died with the lamb. So the coal represented touch of God's grace where Isaiah remembered, okay, okay, God is with me. God is rescuing me at this moment. And I hope, what you, I hope you see what's happening here. What we're seeing here is foreshadowing of what's to come 700 years later in the life of Jesus. Because just as Isaiah sat there in the darkness filled with smoke, Mark chapter 15 verse 33 says that there was, a, there was darkness all over the land when Jesus was crucified on the cross. And just as Isaiah experienced the trembling of God and shaking of the temple, Matthew 27 says when Jesus died, there was an earthquake and the foundation shook and the temple curtain was cut in half. But unlike Isaiah, when Jesus died on the cross, no angel came to rescue Jesus because Jesus became that perfect lamb who died for us, for us on the cross. And there was this great exchange that took place. And a little later, prophet Isaiah uses that phrase, highly exalted, one other time in the book of Isaiah. And it's in chapter 57, where he talks about this rescuer who's gonna come. And he's gonna be highly lifted up on the cross. And he comes, he comes for those who are lowly, those contrite in spirit. And this rescuer is coming after us so God can revive our soul. And so this is who Jesus is. Jesus, he is the Holy One. Jesus is holy, holy, holy. The, the, the God that, that Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah chapter six, this is Jesus. And aren't you glad that we have a savior who is not only highly exalted, but he also comes down to our level and cares for us. Every little small details of our lives. That's, this is who our God is. God, is, God loves us, not from a distance, but God comes to us. He became one of us, and he wants to embrace us with touch of his grace. So here's what I would like to do as we end today. As I was thinking about this passage, I wonder if we as corporate body can enter into the throne room of God. What I simply mean, mean by that is I wonder if we just pause and allow us to experience what it's like for us to stand before God and experience his holiness. Can I invite you to do that right now? In, in fact, let's close our eyes. Let's do that now. I want to give everyone an opportunity to come near to God because scripture tells us that God will come near to us. So go ahead and uh, close your eyes. I will lead us into time of prayer. 
take a deep breath for a moment. And remember the promise Jesus gave us that he is with us. And allow yourself to be in the loving presence of God. Lord, we offer ourselves to you right now. Heavenly Father, we gather together and come into agreement in the wonderful and the powerful name of Jesus. So place yourself in this heavenly throne. You're being surrounded by these angelic beings. And they were singing, holy, holy, holy. Imagine what it's like to be alongside prophet Isaiah. There's a worship that's taking place right now in the heavenlies. Angels bowing before our Lord. So in the quietness of your heart, will you simply praise the Lord, give thanks to him for who he is and what he has done. Thank God for his goodness. Thank God for his beauty, how he watches over us, how he protects us. Father, in your presence, there is no darkness. <coughs> Jesus, we come to you boldly knowing that your name is holy, that you're the giver of life. And we thank you. We thank you for the spiritual inheritance that we receive by the power of your Holy Spirit. <laughs>